electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, it's Disruptor Day. CNBC's ninth annual Disruptor 50 list is highlighting the young private companies pushing their industries forward. A conversation with list founder CNBC's Julia Borston. Look at the companies that were disrupting the big public companies that we talk about every day on CNBC. The idea is that these disruptors are having an impact, but also on a path themselves to become the next generation of industry-leading companies. And interviews with two of this year's disruptors, Clubhouse, the audio-only approach to social media. CEO Paul Davison on disrupting the platforms we already know and love. It's not surprising to see a lot of people wanting to get into audio. We think it's a durable medium. We try not to focus on competition. We try and just stay really laser-focused on our product and our community. And GoPuff, the logistics company reimagining delivery. Co-founder Rafael Ilashayev on his promise to deliver everyday essentials in 30 minutes or less, 24 hours a day. GoPuff is the creator and leader in this instant needs category. We can deliver goods extremely quickly end to end and really be a true one-stop shop for our customers. It's Friday, May 28th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All is good. It's Friday. Good morning. Time now to reveal the ninth annual. Can you believe it's the ninth annual CNBC Disruptor 50 list? There are more than 1,500 nominations. Only 50 made the cut. Uh, there are private companies who are at the epicenter of a changing world, turning ideas into fast-growing businesses, changing the economy. And yes, how we live. The entire list is now on our website right this second in CNBC.com, at CNBC.com. And here is Julia Borston with this year's top five. Julia. Number five, Didi Shuxing, the Chinese ride-hailing giant reportedly driving towards a $100 billion U.S. IPO. More than just the Uber of China, Didi offers dozens of transportation and delivery services to more than 550 million users around the world. Number four, Sentinel One. On a mission to protect the internet from rising cybercrime, the company says it defended more than 4,000 customers from last year's solar winds hack, including corporate giants AT&T, McKesson, and JetBlue. Number three, Discord. Popular among video gamers, the platform captivated users through live social audio. The app has increasingly attracted sports fans, music groups, and crypto traders, not to mention Microsoft, which explored a $10 billion acquisition earlier this year. Number two, Stripe. The financial plumbing for most e-commerce powering platforms from Amazon to Shopify to Uber. It's seen eye-popping growth throughout the pandemic, becoming the nation's biggest private company with a reported valuation of $95 billion. And number one, Robinhood. On a mission to democratize access to financial services and the stock market, the no-fee trading platform has made its mark on Wall Street and is empowering a new generation of investors. Robinhood trading was at the center of record market volatility in names such as GameStop and AMC in January. 
drawing lawsuits from users and questions from Congress. Now it's heading toward the highly anticipated IPO. Now, fintech is the industry with the most companies on this year's list, 11, including Robinhood. There are 34 disruptors this year that are unicorns, and 10 of the 50, including Robinhood, are worth at least $10 billion. Now, nearly half of the companies on this year's list are first-timers, including three of the fintechs, Plaid, which had its sale to Visa, blocked by the government, Brex, and Flutterwave, both of which help small businesses. And Andrew, we've also got Discord and Clubhouse on the list for the first time. I remember when you first started talking about doing this list, this nine years ago, I remember going to a meeting with you uh, back at HQ all about this. <laughs> Looking back, maybe it was about 10 years ago that we were in that meeting and I was pitching this idea. I think it's turned out to be a great way to identify the next generation of companies that's not only disrupting the status quo, but also really companies to watch once they go public. These, these are the future, Andrew. I think maybe you should become a venture capitalist. You, I mean, you're doing a great job uh, doing this, <laughs> but I, it, it seems that way. Julia, it's great to see you. Thank you uh, for bringing us the list and all the work you've done on it uh, over all this time. And uh, as we just mentioned, we have the CEO of A Disruptor, in this case, number 33, Paul Davidson of Clubhouse. That conversation with Clubhouse CEO is coming up on Squawk Pod. What it really comes down to is the people. Clubhouse is nothing without the people. It is everything with the people. To us, there's something so powerful about dialogue and about community. But first, a deeper dive into the disruptor list with the founder herself, Julia Borston. Once you have a company that is forcing all the giants to take note, you know that what they're doing is really powerful. It doesn't mean it's going to succeed, but it does mean that what they've done in the past year is pretty remarkable. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. And in today's episode, we're highlighting CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. I sat down over Zoom with Julia Borston, the CNBC reporter who started it all nearly a decade ago. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us on Squawk Pod. It's my pleasure to be here. This week, we here at CNBC rolled out the ninth annual Disruptor 50 list, which highlights young private companies that are upending their industries. And you founded this list nine years ago. Um, Tell me a little bit about what it is and what qualifies a company as a disruptor. Yes. So it's amazing. It's been nine years. I feel like we learned about so many fascinating tech trends and startups over the past nine years, and so many of them have gone public. So I founded this list nine years ago because I was covering Facebook's IPO, and I was personally really interested in these startups, companies like Twitter and Snap, 
which were nascent, but having a massive impact on the culture and really on their way to being huge businesses in their own right, not just impacting the way we live and maybe impacting the way media companies were behaving, but really impacting um, everything. So I thought that instead of just waiting until a company was pre-IPO, the way to put these companies in a context that would make sense for CNBC's lens of focusing on investing was to look at the companies that were disrupting the big public companies that we talk about every day on CNBC with the idea is that these disruptors are having an impact, but also on a path themselves to become the next generation of industry leading companies. So what we did is over the years, we've you know, refined our, um, our system, but we now have um, an advisory board of about 50 members. So these are academics, experts in entrepreneurship and innovation from around the world and around the country. We have this advisory board and they help us put together this system of considering both qualitative and quantitative metrics to come up with our list. Um, and the, it's actually more heavily weighted towards quantitative things like how fast a company is growing, the size of the addressable market, et cetera. And then of course, there's this, this question of how disruptive are they? Um, and it's been really fascinating to see how the list has evolved over recent years um, as some of the companies have graduated and gone public because in order to qualify for the list, you have to be private. So if you're sold um, or if you have an IPO, either be a SPAC or traditional, IPO, um, you are no longer qualified for the list. This year's number one is Robinhood, which we couldn't stop talking about in the last year. But it's not just about recognizing who's made the biggest splash, right? Because like Clubhouse, for example, really did exactly what you're explaining. It disrupted existing players in that in the social media space. Twitter, Spotify. Facebook. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. So, and I actually think both of those are great examples for what we're talking about in terms of disruption. I mean, Robinhood has not always been a force for good. There are a lot of questions, complaints, lawsuits, regulatory concern about certain things that Robinhood has done, but there's no question that it's gotten a new generation of investors engaged in the stock market and it's forced the incumbents, the big established giants in the banking financial services space to really take note. And a perfect example of that is Fidelity recently launched these youth accounts, free trading for effectively for teenagers to try to get younger people engaged in the market. And so I think when you have a giant like Fidelity responding to something that was really, you know, launched and pursued by Robinhood, it speaks to that disruptive power. And you mentioned Clubhouse. They're a perfect example because they innovated with this concept of sort of social audio, you know, these, these social chat rooms, which are kind of like stages, they're kind of like, um, you know, private clubhouse rooms where people can interact with each other and listen, um, listen to people up on a, on a virtual stage. And then we saw Twitter launch their, their alternative. Facebook has its own alternative. You know, we had Spotify purchase something um, and, and move into that space as well. So once you have a company that is forcing all the giants to take note, you know that what they're doing is really powerful. It doesn't mean it's going to succeed. It doesn't mean that Facebook <laughs> might not crush them, but it does mean that what they've done in the past year is pretty remarkable. And in the past, we've had huge players that really have disrupted um, the way that we live, not just their 
industries, but I mean, Airbnb, SpaceX, Uber, WeWork, pandemic favorite Peloton have all been on this list. What's great is we recently put together um, an index tracking the companies that have gone public. So over 60 companies have gone public and we put together this equal weighted index. At the end of every quarter, we add the companies that have gone public. And what's amazing is in the past 12 months, that index has far outperformed the NASDAQ. So, um, you know, it's, I think the index is up about 78% and the NASDAQ is up about 45% in that 12 month period. So this is a, is a, a basket of companies, if you will, that has, you know, managed to outperform the tech index. And, and I think it really speaks to the innovation that we've been able to identify. Speaking of innovation, uh, what does this list tell us about the innovation ecosystem? Every time it comes out, we see, um, like this year, we saw a lot of fintech companies. One of the other companies that we spoke to on Squawk Box this week was Ripple, um, which is, you know, blockchain meets fintech. Um, We also saw a lot of logistics companies like uh, the app GoPuff. Yeah, I look, I think that this list every year is a great indicator of the trends that are not just have, have not just been huge in the past year, but that are on the rise. The category that was best represented on this list with more companies than any other category was fintech with 11 companies. There were also a range of logistic logistics companies. Um, cryptocurrency has had a has had a representation um, over the past couple of years, but there are also some sort of overlying trends that we've noticed. And one of them is companies with an environmental and social focus. About 35 of the 50 companies said that they have either some and social or environmental intention of their company beyond just making money. And a number of them are really focused on in the environment in particular. I think there are about five or six that have a particular environmental focus. And it's not like a Tom's Shoes, buy one, give one. This is this, these are companies that will succeed if they help the environment. So some of those are things like Appeal, uh, which puts a all natural coating on on produce to help the produce last longer and prevent food waste. Other of them are, there's this amazing robotics company called AMP Robotics, which uses artificial intelligence to sort recycling. So I think that we're increasingly seeing these companies both have an intention to fix the environment, but also have a social consciousness baked in to to part of their business model. And from what I've heard talking to the CEOs, a lot of that has to do with really wanting to resonate with the people they want to hire. And it seems like this new generation of employees really wants to feel like they're working for a company that has a has a specific purpose. I'm also thinking about the venture capital uh, interest in um, ESG related missions. I imagine that that probably plays into the missions of these companies as well. Certainly, certainly. And we've seen a a, a surge in um, VC investment into um, ESG related companies, just environmentally related companies have seen about $10 billion invested in, in them. Um, believe, uh, I believe it's through about mid-May and that's up from about $16 billion in all of last year. So definitely on track to far surpass that this year. A lot of them are based in San Francisco, um, but it seems that there are a couple that aren't. And I think, I mean, one that's coming to mind immediately is Block Power. Um, which we've talked about quite a bit that's based in Brooklyn. Um, But I wonder what we're learning about the innovation ecosystem and the tech startup ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley, especially in light of the pandemic. Well, look, there always is a big attention on the, on the startups that come out of San Francisco and the Silicon Valley area, but actually uh, there are only 24 California based companies on this year's list. And that's down from 28 California based companies 
um, last year. And last year was the first year that less than half of the companies on the Disruptor 50 were from the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area. So um, this year, 19 were from the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area. So obviously, you know, the, the companies in San Francisco have a lot of advantages in terms of access to, um, to top talent, as well as VC dollars, having everyone right there. But I think that the pandemic has really shown that you don't really, it doesn't really matter where you are as much. And I think that we are seeing this rise of the rest. That's what Steve Case calls it. He has his big thesis about the opportunity and the untapped potential in cities around the country. And um, I think we're seeing a rise of the rest and, and companies are seeing that there's massive advantage to being able to hire in places with lower cost of living than the San Francisco area. And there are great hubs of engineering talent um, around universities, like in places like in Southern California, where I live, um, but also in places like Brooklyn, you know, you mentioned the CEO of Block Power, that's a Brooklyn-based, environmentally friendly, um, you know, empowered company that is transitioning buildings and urban areas um, to environmentally sustainable power sources. So I think that um, we are increasingly going to see powerful, fascinating startups come from places outside of the Silicon Valley area. Well, thank you, Julie. I really appreciate your time. Uh, and thank you for this whole list. Your coverage this week was great. Um, it was so thank fun. You. I love disruptors. It's been my it's favorite so thing. It's so fun. <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite thing. I have to say in all of my years of working at CNBC, being able to work on this project has been so gratifying. And it's just fascinating. You find these companies that in a, a lot of occasions, they're huge and growing fast. And you just don't realize how big they are because they're not public and because they don't have that same attention on them. So I think it's good for our viewers to put these companies on their radar um, long before um, they're ready to go public because guess what? The big, the big giants are paying attention to them now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about whether these companies will go public. Also, often they become you know, targets of mergers and acquisitions teams at the yes. big companies that are public. It's fascinating. It's a, a good indicator of some of the moves that are coming up for the tech industry. So thank you for highlighting some of these for us. It is my pleasure. Now, it's only fitting that the first Disruptor interview we bring you today is from the San Francisco area. But don't worry, we have another later on. Coming in at number 33 on the 2021 CNBC Disruptor list is Clubhouse. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joining us in an exclusive interview right now is Clubhouse co-founder and CEO Paul Davison. Paul, it's great to see you again. Thanks for joining us this morning and congratulations uh, on making the list. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, there's so much to talk about uh, since we last talked. Um, the explosion in the valuation of your company uh, at $4 billion, the talk about Twitter uh, at one point trying to buy it. Um, and then, of course, recently you moving just from, from Apple to also a- adding Android. Um, having said that, there's now also all sorts of competition as well. How do you see the landscaping, uh, the landscape changing over the last several months? Well, I think that it's not surprising to see a lot of people wanting to get into audio. We think it's a durable medium and and that, you know, it, it makes sense that other people would want to build features there. But I also think there are benefits to focus. I mean, if you look historically at networks that have been built, there there's a network for text, there's a network for photos, there's a network for video. And I think there's going to be one for audio too. So we try not to focus on competition. We try and just stay really laser focused on our product and our community and, and play the long game. 
And I think when you do that, good things tend to happen. So we'll, we'll hold off on talking about the competition for a moment, but just talk to us about the growth story because we were watching app downloads on <laughs> Apple growing like crazy. I mean, at one point it was 9.6 million downloads in a month, and yet in April it was down to 900,000 on one side. Now, meantime, of course, you're just launching on Android, which should give you a, another growth trajectory. But how do you see that? And to the extent that there are critics or uh, skeptics, if you will, out there who say, look, this was a pandemic play. People were excited to be on audio because they, they couldn't go to dinner and see their friends. Now that they're back in real life, it's changed that dynamic, has it? I think it, when Rohan and I started the company in March of last year, we said to ourselves, we always want to take a measured approach to growth. I think when you grow communities too quickly, things can break. And earlier this year, we started growing faster than we had ever expected. And, and that caused problems with our servers. I mean, we had the servers going down, we had notifications not going out and, and, and you know, discovery became an issue and we really had to slow things down and focus on company building and building out the right infrastructure and, and, and team. To, to build a long-term durable company. And I think that's been a good investment. I mean, we launched Android, like you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, opening up to most of the world on Thursday. We've had over a million people join since then. We've got millions more people on the wait list and we hope to be ready to let people in soon. And, and it goes back to what I was saying before. I think that markets will come and go, competitors will come and go. But if you really play a long-term game, you focus on your community, you focus on the product, you ship updates every week and, and just work to make the product better, you, you, you have the opportunity to build a, a durable company. Uh, you've been adding a number of features uh, to help um, members effectively monetize or hosts monetize, creators monetize uh, what yeah. they're doing. You're not taking a slice of that right now. The question I'd ask you in terms of longer term, how you think about monetizing the business. I know you recently had a partnership with the NFL, for example. Yeah, I, I, you know, we're very excited to build a, a different type of social network where we are only growing when members of our user community, these amazing creators on the platform are growing. So, so I look at people like, like Darius and Leah and Eric and, and, and Andrew and, and you know, the late nights, early mornings crew, like all of these people who are out there hosting these incredible conversations every day, we want to help make them successful. And so we want to build a business model that's based on things like ticketed events and in-room tipping and, and charging for subscriptions, allowing these amazing people who are smart and funny and have domain expertise and are, and are just great at bringing people together to get paid directly by happy listeners who wanna thank them for the experiences that they're creating. We wanna make sure that our business only grows when they grow. So as you pointed out, we, we rolled out our first payments feature a little while back, and we take nothing from those transactions because we really want to, to help the creators make money. And as we grow, we're going to introduce new forms of payments, new forms of subscriptions and tipping and, and other things to help creators monetize. Right. Um, and, and we'll take a cut of some of those to help fund the business. I, I know you're laser focused on your own business, but there is a lot of competition. So I just I'm hoping you can speak to it a little bit. Obviously, Twitter, which in, in part, I would argue, um, Clubhouse has used Twitter as a platform to oftentimes promote Clubhouse conversations, is now in the business itself with, with Twitter spaces. And, and now they're doing their own version of ticketing so that there's a, a revenue component. We're hearing that Spotify is getting in this business. We're hearing that 
that uh, Facebook and Instagram may be getting in this business. Who knows whether LinkedIn will ultimately do something. In the enterprise space, you hear that Slack is trying to have a social audio component. So how, how do you differentiate what you're doing relative to those others? Well, I think that the uh, what it really comes down to is the people. I mean, Clubhouse is nothing without the people. It is everything with the people. And we just have tried to create a space where people can come together and talk and have conversations. I mean, voice, we always say it's the oldest medium. We've been gathering with other people in small groups and, and talking since the beginning of civilization. And if you look at what's happening on Clubhouse today, it's just unbelievable. I mean, we have, we have a room that's been going on for the past week called Meet Palestinians and Israelis, where, yep. where something like 450,000 people have come in and, and they're meeting people who are on the ground and, and, and these aren't political pundits that they're talking with. They're talking with, with, with mothers and teachers and, and shopkeepers and, and, and people who have grown up there. Oftentimes, these are people in, in small town America, in, in Japan, in Nigeria, who have never had a chance to talk with someone um, in these regions. And they're just connecting with them as humans. And, and to us, there's something so powerful about, about dialogue and about community. And so the only thing that we try and focus on is, is supporting and building the, the best and most amazing right. community of people that want to come together and talk. And, and there will be other flavors. There will be people that approach this from a professional perspective, from, a, you know, from, a, right. from this perspective or that perspective. But at the end of the day, I think social platforms, um, they, they, there are benefits to, um, to community and, and, and to, to having the best community Paul, out there. And I think it, that's what it's Real quick, it's fabulous to watch your success. My question to you is, uh, it sounds like you may have turned down an offer to be sold uh, prior to Twitter and possibly others, and you want to remain independent. Long term, if we're having this conversation five years from now, do you imagine that Clubhouse will be an independent company, or is there a price at which you would say, you know what, this actually makes sense to merge with another company that has a social graph, you layer it together, and, and, and one plus one equals three? Yeah, uh, yeah we, I mean, we generally don't comment on, on rumors like that, but um, I think voice is a really durable medium. And I think there's a very important product and, and company to be built here. It's the most exciting thing that we've ever been a part of. And we just want to stay focused on, on building that and, and on the product and on the community in the long right. term. Paul, thank you. Uh, it is exciting to see your success. And we do look forward to following uh, all of your progress. And I will see you on Clubhouse. Next on Squawk Pod, delivery disrupted. Logistics and e-commerce company GoPuff promises everyday essentials in 30 minutes or less, 24 hours a day. Someone can get onto the GoPuff app. They'll see a collection and curation of all of GoPuff products. So anything from right. alcohol to drinks to snacks to baby. They'll be able to order those products right on the Uber app. And then our delivery partners will then deliver it to our customers. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Welcome back to Squawk Pod, the day of disruptors. Our next company highlight, CNBC's 2021 disruptor number 36, Philadelphia-based GoPuff. It's a vertically integrated logistics company, meaning it owns all the products it sells and the places it stores them, and it handles everything from app order to delivery drop-off. For context, other delivery services like DoorDash and Postmates, even Uber Eats, are third-party apps, not vertically integrated. The company actually started on a college campus delivering, well, munchies, essentially, but it's grown into much more than that in its eight years. Now, it's in 650 cities across 41 states, and not long after this holiday weekend, you'll see Essentials Delivery on Uber Eats, powered by GoPuff on your Uber app. The company recently acquired the liquor store chain BevMo and its 160 locations. So now you can get convenience items like Tylenol, ice cream, batteries, moisturizer, pretzels, and your liquor all in one go. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joining us right now is Rafael Ilashaev. He's GoPuff's co-CEO and co-founder. Uh, Rafael, good morning to you. Uh, to those uninitiated, explain the business uh, because it's a bit different than I think uh, a lot of the other sort of delivery businesses, if you will, and that it's vertically integrated. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, super, super excited to be selected uh, for the second year in a row for CNBC Disruptors. Huge testament to our team. Uh, so GoPuff is the creator and leader in this instant needs category. So essentially what that means is uh, we stock all of our inventory in our micro-fulfillment centers. Uh, we operate in the pet, baby, alcohol, over-the-counter medication, household snack and drink category. And as a byproduct, by, by warehousing and keeping all of these in our micro-fulfillment centers, we can deliver goods extremely quickly end-to-end -end and really be a true one-stop shop for our customers. So, but I guess the biggest question I'd ask, and we've seen it during the pandemic, is what's happened to, to, to the stock and what happens in these warehouses in terms of making sure you have the right products? You know, uh, early in the pandemic, it really was uh, kind of an all hands on deck situation. There was uh, obviously massive fill rates all across uh, the industry. Uh, but myself, my team, everyone really worked kind of endlessly to make sure that we can really be there for people when they needed us most. So we really worked kind of uh, around the clock to make sure that uh, everything from fill rates to products and uh, expansion of SKUs uh, were there for when customers needed us most and uh, really, really happy how our team came together and was able to really deliver a phenomenal experience for customers, you've, not just you've in the pandemic, into, for the last eight years. You've entered into a, a partnership uh, with Uber Eats. How does that work? So uh, I think the Uber partnership, uh, just like so many others that have reached out to us, is just really a testament to the network that we built throughout the whole country. We built really strong proprietary technology inside these buildings that power this instant needs category. And I think as a byproduct of that, so many of uh, people have taken notice of how we can leverage uh, GoPuff's infrastructure and GoPuff's technology uh, to power national delivery. Okay, but I, I, I don't know what that means. What, how does the partnership between Uber uh, and, and yourself work? Yeah, so uh, in, in layman terms, uh, someone can get onto the GoPuff app. Uh, they'll see a collection and curation of all of GoPuff products. So anything from right. alcohol to drinks to snacks to baby. They'll be able to order those products right on the Uber app. They'll get routed to our micro-fulfillment centers, and then our delivery partners will then deliver it to our customers, um, you know, in 30 minutes so, or less. So, Raphael, who, who are the delivery partners? Who are the delivery partners? 
So if you if you look at our uh, at our business model, we have our operations associates, the full time employees that are picking and packing inside of the warehouse, and uh, delivery partners are in essentially independent contractors that we partner with around the whole country to power the delivery itself. So where do you stand on this really large debate about contractors, um, whether they uh, constitute being uh, freelancers effectively or whether they should be staffers in, in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of states around the country where this is has become a real debate? So if you look at our model, our model is a little different than kind of your, your typical gig economy model, right? We monetize products, not people. Uh, and essentially what that means is our gross margin and our contribution margin is made by the markup that we have on the product. So, you know, the delivery fees and everything else that we charge to the customer at that $1.95 is essentially an entire pass through to the driver. And listen, we're keeping our, our ear kind of uh, close to the issue and uh, we're, we're listening to our driver partner each and every day and uh, looking forward to kind of uh, looking and iterating on the model kind of for months and years to come. But essentially the, seeing, the model itself, right. go ahead. I, I, I was just gonna ask, are, are you seeing inflation hit your business? Um, not, not, not as much as uh, some, some other businesses have talked about, uh, but we, we are seeing kind of some post-COVID trends uh, come through in a, in a pretty aggressive way. And we're, we're adjusting as a byproduct, right? We're adjusting not just uh, from kind of what's happening from an economy standpoint, but from products that consumers are asking for and being really, really aggressive on kind of introducing those products uh, to our micro-fulfillment centers and ultimately getting into our customers very quickly. And you've obviously had a tremendous growth during this pandemic, but how sustainable is it? How much of it is a, a pull forward? And how much uh, do you, how, how worried are you about what happens when stimulus checks end? So if you look, right, GoPup was launched eight years ago in 2013. And really, we really focused on nailing the business model than scaling it. So if, uh, if you look, we had a little bit of an unorthodox beginning, right? We didn't raise money for our first two and a half years in the business. Uh, we were EBITDA kind of profitable uh, in day one. And we really just focused on how do you build a sustainable uh, and aggressive business kind of from day one. So we've been growing triple digits uh, year over year since our inception. Uh, the pandemic obviously was an accelerant to that, uh, but we've been in this massive kind of rocket ship growth for the last eight years. And we plan to continue to press on the accelerator in a pretty aggressive way for years to come. Okay, uh, Rafael, uh, appreciate it. Congratulations, I look forward to following your progress. Uh, I imagine maybe one day you'll be ringing the bell at the NASDAQ or maybe we'll be talking about a big merger with you at some point, but appreciate it. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're off Monday for the Memorial Day holiday, as I hope you are as well. Enjoy your long weekend, and we'll meet you back here on Tuesday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.